This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass. I'm James Roy. I'm Program Manager at Westwards. And today my very special guest is Pete Schmiggle. How are you, Pete? I'm really well, James. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. We, we had a chat um, three years ago, uh, I think it was, because you, you wrote a piece in the, um, in the Sydney Morning Herald after your mum passed away, didn't you? She was in New York and, and passed away in the first wave of COVID. Yeah, she did. Um, and... Uh... It was, yeah, if you think about it, three years ago when our sort of parameters of knowledge around COVID were so different to what they are now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even now, you know, you have conversations about COVID and look at the difference in the emotional content that they have now as opposed to what they had then. And it's kind of an interesting situation in terms of, you know, how our facts and our emotions and context all combine to to shape our reality. I mean, what's, yeah. what's so really different between three years ago and now? It's, it's, we probably know a little bit more, probably have a little bit more resilience around things. But, you know, people are surviving a bit people more. Surviving. Yeah. Totally different standpoint to, to what I probably would have felt three years ago. Oh, I, I remember that conversation. And it was, it was um, a pretty horrible thing. Um, especially, mainly, I think the main, the main point you made in the interview was that she had to be alone while it happened and all yeah. those sorts of things, which is just pretty brutal. So it is good that we're sort of on the other side of that. But, yep. but again, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about oh, you, Mum. Um, but we're here to talk about something a little bit different today. Um, you've just... Well, first of all, a little bit of background about yourself. You've, you've been a CEO, you've been on various boards, you've worked um, in NGOs, you've worked in... In, uh, I think you're currently advisor to to the Ukrainian ambassador to Australia and New Zealand, <laughs> and you've worked in the recycling and the environmental space. You're a, you're a, land, a freelance journalist. You're a writer. Uh, you've popped up. I've seen your name pop up in most of the big journals and papers around the country. Um, does that is that a fair summation of? Who Pete Schmiggle is? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me either, but you know, but it, it somehow happened uh, over time. And uh, and look, if I'm if I'm to be truthful, it's it's been a great kind of cool set of synchronicities and privileges and honors to be able to 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 have a little bit to do with many different areas that I'm super curious about, whether it's mental health or whether it's environmental stuff or whether it's politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think you know the first the first thing that I always admired about creative people as I was growing up and further was their sense of curiosity yeah right of just wanting to understand you know how does that work or you know I love those books you ever see those books about you know those how-to books that you give to kids when they're like eight years old mm-hmm. and you know that you're really buying them for yourself because yeah. really, you really want to know how does how does that microphone work right? Yeah, right, right. how do they make a tennis ball and stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah. it's it's just it's the wellspring of all creativity and so on. yeah curiosity no that, that's that's a very good point um well, that's interesting because a few months back you found yourself in, well, I say found yourself, I'm sure you went there on purpose, but you found yourself in Ukraine. Yeah. And then you recently went back again. Yep. I think the first, if I get this right, the first time you were doing a blog while you were over there. And, yeah, I was and, doing a blog in some freelance journalism and some humanitarian stuff. And this time I went back, I was uh, had about a three-month-long stint with the Kiev Post, which is mm-hmm. a... Uh, English language paper that comes out of Kiev every day. 
Yeah, right. So let's go back then. What, what took you there the first time? Um, well, I've got a, a cultural connection uh, through my parents who were refugees from World War Two, So uh, that's been ever-present throughout my 59 whatever years. I am a values person. You know, human rights is uh, something I take very seriously and very passionately. And whether I'm Ukrainian or whether I'm Australian, whether I'm Italian, um, I think we all have kind of an obligation or responsibility around human rights protection, um, etc. And, you know, I just happen to be in this set of circumstances where I know a language, I know a culture, I've got my values, I've got a certain skill set. So I just feel it's kind of my duty, literally to go and, and report these people's stories. I mean... But how much of that duty was offset against just the curiosity you mentioned a moment ago? Yeah, good point. Um, so, for example, we read a lot about Ukrainians who are living under bombs and living under attacks and uh, all sorts of things. And I'm really interested in... How do they make sense of all of this? How do they explain it to themselves? That, you know, last three years ago, they were driving their kids to soccer practice and now they're leaving the country or figuring out which bomb shelter to go and, you know, to go from this kind of like normality to this extraordinary abnormality that is war. I mean, that's the definition of war. Remove everything normal. That's war. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really curious uh, about, um, what story they tell themselves to be able to get out of bed every day, right? You know, some people talk about resilience and they talk about bravery. You know, I actually think that's kind of true, but I think they're also super cliched words. And so I've been trying to go back and forth to Ukraine for a long time to kind of understand, you know, where does it come from, that capacity to basically try to be normal, to try to go forward, to try to build something new? You know, and yeah, it's been kind of... Part of what I'm going to be writing about here at Westwards, in fact, is uh, is over the next period is I'm going to try to do a set of stories that kind of explores um, how you make sense out of the senseless uh, through the eyes of uh, people who have been through the war in Ukraine. One of the things that I notice about Ukrainians a lot in this era is that resilience isn't so much a choice it's the outcome of kind of regime and repetition, right? right? It's, it's a habit that you learn through experience as opposed to, I'm going to be brave today or I'm going to buckle up or I'm going to make positive choices or it's less a conscious thing that I've seen in my experience of those folks over there and more uh, uh, just a determination to say, I'm just going to be like I was before this. I'm just going to be as normal as I possibly can. And, you know, and it's kind of cool to me that in that kind of really normal way, uh, people become superheroes. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not wearing masks and gowns and the stuff of Marvel or, or, you know, even the stuff of literature where, you know, you know, we've got hundreds of years of manufacturing these characters who yeah. are 
you know, kind of, you know, all-seeing and all-powerful, etc., etc. You know, it's one of our traditions of literature, right? The great man or the great woman, you know. The hero's journey and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely, the arc that the hero has to experience, you know, you know, starting off here and then having this great, great uh, thing that they have to confront and somehow, you know, they resolve it and they come out better at the end and da da And I go, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, heroism and bravery and courage... You know, is is more of an inches game <laughs> of you know, did I fold my shirt and put it back in the drawer? Did I uh, did I manage to order the cup of coffee at the same barista I've been going to for the last seven years? And and suddenly, you know, the day after day of just being completely normal, you find yourself kind of not only surviving, but kind of I think kind of you know morally uh, justified. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm. I'm fascinated by World War Two history. Mm. My my part of my family was German, and I've spent some time mm. looking at some of those you know, sites and so forth. And I'm kind of fascinated by it. But one of the things that I think about a lot when I'm when I'm reading about that, or travelling there, or talking to someone like Mal Pete, who wrote an amazing book called Tamar, which was about the um, the Dutch resistance. Mm. And you know, one of the things <laughs> one of the things he said about because I think his grandfather was in the Dutch resistance, he was a radio operator and he, he told he told Mal that his strongest memory of that time was how cold he was up in, the, mm-hmm. up in that barn waiting for the, mm-hmm. the radio transmissions to come through. But yeah, that, that's beside the point. Mm-hmm. The, the point I'm making is that I often look at these, say, a docu- documentary film or a recreation, I see people going about their lives in the Polish ghetto or whatever and doing the day-to-day stuff that you do as a, as a person living your life and meanwhile, just coping with the fact that you've got to wear the yellow star or you've got yeah. to, you know, go a particular way or skirt around the big pile of ammunition or whatever it might be. And, and that's always felt to me to be a little bit kind of... I don't want to use the word romanticised, but, you know... Interesting. Is that feeling something that is palpable and real in, in what you saw in Ukraine? Um, the idea that... Just surviving is romantic? No, the, the idea that... So, oh, I guess it's basically what you were saying a second ago, is that surviving becomes a, just part of living. Yeah, that, that's it right. Yeah. part of the subset yeah. of living that's your right. life. Right? They, they certainly don't see it as romantic. No, right? no, no. And that's what I really kind of pick up from them and really am kind of interested by is... You know, so for the typical answer for everybody I ask it, and it's it's fascinating. This has become like the cross-cultural response to the question, why do you do this? Why do you go to the front? Why do you volunteer? Why do you uh, be a soldier? You know, so many friends of mine who are intellectuals are now, you know, and creatives, you know, all that sense of, you know, award-winning film directors now grunt on the front. You know, uh, another friend of mine who has won, uh, you know, every, you know, several acting awards is a grunt on the front. A pediatrician friend of mine is a sniper on the front, right? And so that when you ask them the question, why are you doing this? They simply say, oh, I have no choice. Um, this is what I must do. Or if not me, then who? It, there's, there's always this kind of like stoicism, resignation, acceptance. It's, it's not romantic in that Western sense of saying, I am making this big decision to do this heroic thing. You know, I am fighting for my country. Nothing. One day I'll be played by Russell Crowe. Something like that, yeah. right? You know, it's, it's, it's a much 
more Eastern kind of viewpoint. I mean, you know, you, sure the Ukrainians are Europeans, but you know, they they have a you know thousands and thousands of years of history that's pagan, and you know, and that pagan history is all about you know kind of accepting the natural world as it is rather than trying to fight back against it. So they're in some ways they they're they're better than I think our society, our Australian society, or certainly our American society is a kind of accepting what their fate is and just dealing with it step by step by step. It's a different cultural paradigm. My old man who survived World War Two used to say to me, you know, as a Ukrainian refugee, he used to say to me, in Eastern Europe, there's no such thing as peace. There's only breaks between wars. You know, that, you know that's horrible and fatalistic because that was my dad. <laughs> but, 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 you know, but on the other hand, you know, you look at it and you go, wow, that, that's actually kind of more realistic, poignant accepting of, you know, the kind of flow of life as opposed to this kind of idolized romantic notion that, well, I deserve to be happy, goddammit. Mm-hmm. You know, so. I guess that, that idea of um, you know, this war being, war and conflict being the default and everything else, I mean, yes, that is a, a slightly fatalistic view of it, <laughs> I agree, but... But it's also borne out by the fact that so many of those borders around, you know, Prussia and yeah. Hungary and Czech Republic, and all, they, they've been shifting in for the last, what, several hundred years, right? Yeah, we had an origin story in my family that we escaped through Slovakia. <laughs> and I kept on looking at maps and maps of, for decades about that's physically impossible. They couldn't have gone from A to B through Slovakia. And sure enough, after a lot of diligent research, I figured out that for like a six-month period, at one point, Slovakia took over this tiny little slice of Hungary and right, da 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 da. So you know the you know the, the the maps, you know, and the lines on maps very much justify this notion of, you know, the, a lot of conflict, you know, and yet, I mean, going back to you know like where we started, you know, yes, it's a region that's been defined by a lot of internecine war. You know, horrible things, people doing atrocious things to one another. You know, my mother's village was razed to the ground in 1947 after the war. Wow. Um, 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 and yet, you know, it's a place of intense kind of beauty, right? In terms of its cultural practices, its visual arts, uh, its literary traditions. Um, yeah, again, it shows that somehow we weirdo human beings are capable of, you know, the worst violence and the worst benevolence at the same time, you know, and, you know, and, and I think that that's part of what I like doing in the writing is, is somehow reflecting on that duality that, that all of us experience on one level or another level, you know, whether it's at a cultural level or at a personal level, you know, the fact that we are not black and white creatures where we got bits and pieces of everything and they kind of compete against each other and then sometimes they complement each other, et cetera, et cetera. Western Sydney, wow, how many dualities, right? I mean, when I write, I'm mostly writing fiction, but I have written a bit of nonfiction and I have to admit that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the the Marvel Universe Mm. and I'm fairly disinterested in that because my view is we've got enough stuff going on in real life, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I empathise. I mean, I have actually have a hard time connecting with fantasy writing and science fiction writing because, you know, I write partly because I'm trying to decipher my own current reality and, you know, and, uh, and 
yeah, I actually need to be present with what's going on around me at the moment. Um, you know, look, you know, for everybody, not everybody, sorry. For many of us who write, this is as much a therapeutic exercise as it is a creative exercise. And, you know, and, and maybe for others, but not for me, you know, just as like you mentioned, to try to go off into a, into a phantasmagorical realm doesn't hit the notes. <laughs> enough horror, fantasy, and beauty in the world without having to create more. Totally, you know. So, and put yourself, if you could, just for a moment, back in Kharkiv where you yeah. you met some people I'm about to talk about. Um, we all have these moments where we wake up in, a, let's say, the first time you travel to, mm. from in my my case, the United States, I wake up in the morning and go, oh my God, I'm in Washington, D.C. This is... Mm. I've waited all my life to be here. Mm. Did you have moments where you woke up in Kharkiv or somewhere like that and just went, holy crap, I'm, I'm in the middle of a war zone. How did this happen? Um, I, yeah, I mean, there's a suburb outside of Kharkiv called Saltivka. And Saltivka is a typical Soviet-era suburb of like 10 and 12-story high-rise buildings that go on for kilometers. Um, and... During the course of the war, Saltivka has been completely leveled. There's no one left essentially living there anymore. It's just hectare after hectare of high-rise buildings that have been destroyed. And, um, you know, and not just kind of like arbitrarily destroyed, intentionally destroyed. I mean, there I was taken to buildings, 12-story buildings that were destroyed by $6 million missiles, you know, that are designed to take out battleships and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's very much a planned program of creating an urban desert. And that's kind of when it hit me that, wow, this is not just a war, this is a scale of savagery and barbarity and intention that, you know, that that me and my kind of safer Western mind and model of living have, have never really conceived of. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a liberal in the classic sense. I believe that people are good. I did. <laughs> you know, I did. You know, when I got to places like Saltivka, I go, wow, our fellow human is actually capable of, of just abject evil, mm-hmm. right? You know, that, that is someplace within us, you know, and, you know, the starting point assumption that, you know, we're all kind of kind inside, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'm still still trying to figure out whether that's true, whether cultural circumstances apply or economic circumstances apply. You know, is there some kind of root cause that's explicable here? But you know, yeah, there was there were those times in Saltivka where it was hard to find any explanation other than this is brutal in the sense of brute, mm. non-human. And sure enough, on that day that we were in Saltivka, we were going back, and yeah, I ended up in. Uh, in artillery shelling and you know then probably more than any time before you know I got to see and experience you know death at first hand and and yeah I still don't know what I make of of that experience yeah my my friend Shannon has a thing he talks about where he talks about the the illusion of competence and he talks about the fact that um and I think we all have this, is we think, and we kind of had this when COVID first came on. We're like, okay, well, here's this thing that's everyone has seen, appears to be getting in it. Um, but the CSIRO and everyone they know will deal with this very quickly. And 
the the president of the United States and the Prime Minister, they'll all get together all yeah. and saner heads will prevail, cooler heads will prevail. Does this <laughs> does Ukraine make you question that? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, from a rational standpoint, you, the, that illusion of competence kicks in. You keep on saying, well, certainly there have got to be leaders in the world who are good of heart and have the right intentions and value peace and think that people shouldn't die arbitrarily and yeah, yeah. somehow, you know, they'll figure this out. Um, but yeah, that's on my skin, you know. Um, yeah, the Russians that, love their children too. Exactly. You know? It's like, exactly you know, they the must. You know, they the must, world. right? And, you know, you want to believe that because I've been raised that way and, you know, that's been my exposure yeah. entirely. But, you know, in experiencing this war in my own right and seeing, you know, death very up close and personal, it makes you wonder that, you know, maybe these things that we talk about are actually constructs to make ourselves feel better and to, to, to feel safer in a world that's actually a lot more dangerous than we actually credit it for. You know, you know, when I listen to myself, I, I don't in any one way want to diminish the fact that, you know, when I look at my grandson, I still think that the world is great. Yeah. You know? But perhaps, you know, the time in Ukraine, the experience of Ukraine has also told me that that there is another space that kind of belongs not to our better angels, but to to everything that is is, is awful about us as a, as a species. Right? So to try and bring this back to the idea of creativity, mm. um, and I don't know how, how really how to ask this question, but I, I guess I'll just ask it simply. Has the experience of being going to Ukraine twice during a conflict like this, um, has it made you a better writer, a better storyteller? Has it changed yeah, it, you for it the totally, worst in any way? No, no, it, no, it totally has. Um, I think every writer comes to a moment, whether they admit it to themselves or not, where they figure out that the best thing they can do is get out of their own way, right? Is that, you know, how do I um, kind of do the most I can to, to pull away my kind of assumptions and pull away my kind of, you know, conscious ego and how do I just let the story tell itself? Right? The story matters, not my, not me, right? And I think that when you see the, that ability of people to get on with their lives, when you see them kind of just putting one foot in front of the other, when you see how honorable it actually is, right, in its own way, you kind of feel very humbled. And I feel like I'm in a better position now to just kind of uh, provide the canvas and, and let their stories, whether they're on the fictional side or non-fictional side, kind of take place. Um, you know, a lot of writers have talked about being a vessel, right? And, you know, whether that's true or not, you know, I don't know. But I, I think there's a good discipline from a storytelling perspective to say, you know, I don't matter. It's the words that I'm putting down here. It's the characters that matter. It's the, it's the things that the characters are saying. It's the things that the eyewitnesses are saying. You know, to be a true reporter... Right, as rather than memoirs, because the memoir is sort of is internalizing them. Correct, you know. So, um, you know that there's so much cool stuff been happening in the last ten years, hasn't there? Been about you know unconscious bias and 
and and all of that. So I, you know, we're almost in kind of a really cool and you know post truth and what what's true and what's not true. We're actually kind of in a cool period where you know there's a there's a challenge to those of us who are of the scribbling species <laughs> to to say you know how do I um, where do I find myself in this right. And for me, not for everybody, a lot of people are fantastic at doing first person and, and making themselves the story because they got something important to say. For me, that the choice is the other way to say is, how do I minimize, minimize, minimize self and maximize, maximize, maximize the story? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're putting in a slightly different way something that I've often talked about myself, which is you know, that when you're writing well, Basically, your job is to become invisible to the reader so that Perfect. they don't see the re- the writer, they see the story and the characters. And I guess that plays out in this sort of writing as well, doesn't it? Oh, totally. And, you know, and it gets a little bit more challenging because, you know, I write in the third-person um, uh, omniscient narrator. So if, if, if you're doing that, you know, how, how do you pull off the trick of saying... I don't really know what's going to happen here. I just want the characters to figure it out, etc. But you know that's part of the fun of it, right? Is um, is I have a background at Lifeline. Is one of the things yeah. I did, and one of the, the amazing things that Lifeline does is it listens without judgment, yeah. right? You know, every time somebody calls Lifeline three thousand times a day, everybody on the other end of the phone is is trained to basically listen without judgment, unconditional positive regard it's called and I kind of use that as a keystone for what I'm trying to do creatively right Mm. listen to the characters without judgment right you know get to a point where the characters have their own life that's independent and outside of me and let them tell the story rather than me tell the story well to to kind of pursue that slightly before we wrap up did you in your time there speak to people who were pro-Russian um, they're hard to find now, I uh, will be honest. I have set myself the challenge of trying to write uh, stories through the eyes of people who are necessarily on the other side of the conflict from the side that, that I happen to culturally find myself on, right? Because I think that um, is part of trying to decipher this issue of, of brutality and barbarism and sadism, sadism, etc., etc., you know, where does it come from? Um, is it possible for people to undertake, you know, atrocities as, as they have without being evil, right? That, you know, that, that was it some kind of transactional thing? Was it simply because I've been subject to so much propaganda and, and brainwashing that, you know, I find that to be a normal moral choice, you know, to kill 80 people in a cellar or whatever, right? So I think that to, to try to figure out this kind of conundrum that I've got in my head about is there really evil, how big is it, etc. You know, that that requires me to basically go inside some characters who who we would think are evil or who we would accuse of being evil or who we would we would uh, put into the corner of being evil. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Very, very last thing before we wrap up. I was really taken with a piece that you wrote about uh, the pirates. The pirates, they're great. The pirates <laughs> of... We Fuck you. Yeah. So it's about, um, it's probably about 25, 30 volunteers. They started literally a day after the wars started. Um, and they range from, uh, the, the, the core group of them actually comes out of something called LARP. Mm. Um, uh, 
live um, action role, role play. play. Yeah, so they dress up in, which is when you mentioned earlier that the the great pagan yeah. tradition of Ukraine. Well, these guys are buying right into that. Aren't you know, they? I'd never heard of LARP until. Oh, I really? Never yeah. heard of we them. We see them all the time. You know, the I, every once in a while in Paramount Park, I see yeah. a couple of people bashing each other with swords with and stuff like that. But it, I oh, that's just, that's just kind of never that's put it all Paramount. together. <laughs> that's just Paramount. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they they go to competitions and they produce these extraordinary costumes oh, yeah. and elaborate roles and there's championships and there's you know rules and committees and judges. It's like a whole other universe. We occasionally get them coming to the emergency department at Katoomba Hospital. Right. Contusions and <laughs> <laughs> what happened to you? I got hit with a broadsword. Check the date. So yeah, they they. Um, uh, the basis of this particular group of volunteers, this little NGO, is all these people who are part of this LARP team mm. have now transferred all their creativity and their energy and their positivity and their vitality towards this kind of cool work. Well, they, you mentioned their sword play skills. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they're not a lot of opportunity to use that. You know, and amazingly multicultural people of you know different uh, ethnic backgrounds, people of different uh, faith systems very different people from different kind of professional backgrounds and again it was like nobody there would ever think of themselves as heroic mm. you know even though for example in LARP you know they were probably playing these vast heroes yeah, yeah. and you know you know swinging from ropes mm. you know imaginary ones and, or otherwise and uh, it's just you know this is what we do this is our obligation you know this is how we maintain sanity so when you say pirates what are they actually doing that makes them pirate like um, so what they do is they get a whole bunch of donations from Western donors from about 26 countries, food, clothing, toothpaste, you name it, anything. And they get in these clapped out old vans and, you know, six or seven of them drive around these terrible roads and through destroyed villages. And they find the local villages that were under occupation for about seven months and whose economies haven't in any way been restored because the fields are all mined. Uh, and they give out the food parcels and all of that. And they do a bit of mental health coaching and... And, and stuff like that, but it's... There's also a photo of one of them urinating on one of the Z-cams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, interesting guy from the United States, of all places, you know, this Midwesterner who used to work on oil fields. Mm. It's now you know, a truly hard man has now found this softer side in terms of trying to help these villagers out and stuff like that. And um, Yeah, but, you know, it's all gallows humor and it's all, you know... If the truck rolls down the hill, so what? Get another truck, and you know it's got that kind of pirate feel to it. Is like, sounds know, like it's got a real kind of um, computer game, um, Far Cry kind of feel. Yeah, like, all these grab, folks grab any truck with the keys still in it, and that's your truck now. Absolutely, all these folks are a whole lot younger than me. They're you know they topped out in their late thirties, and you know it's sort of like. Um, um, it's a trope, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like they're living this kind of trope. Yeah. You know, I, I also thought of, like, you know, like the steampunk stuff. Yes. Right? You know, like, you know, like, so if the, the truck did break down, in fact, on the day we were with it, and, you know, they were literally out there with, like, you know, wire and duct tape and, but, you know, nobody in any way kind of um, anxious about this or um, upset that this was happening. It was, you know, this is, again, you just, you just keep on, keep on going, right? no matter what. And, yeah. So yeah, kind of cool group of people. Um, you know, in a, in a quieter moment, one of them, Masha, said to me that um, uh, she's about 37, she's got a daughter that she's had to send uh, overseas during the war, um, who's 12. Um, so she's living separated from her own family. Um, she said to me that 
on Facebook, she had already counted 30 people that she had grown up with who were friends of hers that she had lost in the war. And, you know, I I make up that... (laughs) I'll go back on some. Denial is one of the most powerful things of the human condition. Right, mm-hmm. that that to be able to live, to survive, to breathe. Sometimes we just have to pretend stuff isn't happening, uh, whether we do that consciously or unconsciously. And mm-hmm. um, um, it, it was kind of wild to talk to this woman who, who chooses to be in denial about the death of thirty of her friends, mm-hmm. to be able to drive around and give these parcels out to maybe thirty other people who will survive as a result of her efforts and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But again, you know, if, if you were to run into her at a cafe, you'd see a really hip, trendy, you know, young-looking woman who's dressed in high fashion, well, goth kind of fashion, actually. Um, and you go, wow, you know, you would never call yourself a hero or somebody special. You're just somebody doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but, you know, part of what I'm trying to do here at Westwards over the next few months is actually find a language for all this. I think that's one of the cool things about Westwards is it's giving me the space to at least say, how do I come up with a vocabulary for all this? Well, maybe we'll check in with you in a couple of months and see where you're at. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Listen, Pete well, thank you so much for talking to us. We're deeply grateful for yeah, you taking the time and we look forward to reading what you come up with. Yeah, thank you, James.